The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, your Chest Podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be an interesting discussion of global practices and end-of-life communication. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. Charles Feldman and Dr. Sperus Mincelopoulos as our guests. Dr. Feldman and his colleagues wrote an article in the Chest Journal Global Comparison of Communication of End-of-Life Decisions in the Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Feldman is a Distinguished Professor of Pulmonology at the University of Witzvatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Dr. Mincelopoulos is a Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at the National University of Athens Medical School. So this is uh, Dr. Feldman, and I'd like to thank you, Dr. Winter for inviting me to and and Spiros to do this podcast, and I'd also like to say how pleased we were when our study was chosen by Chess to be highlighted uh, in this podcast. Well, we are very excited to hear more about it. So let's start by discussing your why. Why did you decide to research this topic? What was your question, and why was it important? So, despite the international consensus for many ethical principles underlying end-of-life care, for example, consensus for patient autonomy or beneficence, non-maleficence, there is considerable variation in actual practice within and between countries and world regions. For example, regarding European ICUs, the frequency of withholding life-sustaining treatments ranged from 15 to 80 percent in 1999-2000, and from 18 to 100% in 2015-2016. Accordingly, the Ethical Stool Study revealed a 2015-2016 worldwide variation of 2.4 to 100% in withholding. Communication between the patient's surrogate decision-makers and the treating team is considered as essential for the reaching of shared decisions that accord with the patient's values, goals, and preferences. However, the existing large variation in end-of-life decisions and practices makes it reasonable to hypothesize that a variation of similar magnitude might exist in communication practices. Given the paucity of data on communication practices, we sought to determine the frequency of end-of-life discussions in a large sample of ICUs, 
situated around the globe in eight pre-specified world regions. In addition, we sought to determine whether the occurrence of end-of-life discussions is affected by ethical practice as graded by a recently defined ethical practice score or whether it is affected by the presence of an advanced directive. So can you briefly de uh, describe your study design for our listeners? Yes, so this was an additional standalone investigation with data original from, uh, originating from the global Ethicus II study. The Ethicus II study was a multi-center international prospective observational study of 12,850 consecutive patients who died or who, who had a limitation of life-sustaining treatment and who were recruited from 199 ICUs in 36 countries, which, as you heard, were grouped into eight geographical regions. A data collection sheet was utilized to collect the required data, which was entered onto the form by the ICU physician or their designee according to pre-planned instructions which were provided. This standalone study was of communication of end-of-life practices worldwide. Among the data collected for this component were questions related to whether the patient had decision-making capacity at the time of end-of-life decisions, whether the patient's wishes regarding end-of-life decisions or choices were known by way of an advanced direct or were asked for or received, and if received, from whom. Most of the remaining questions related to communication uh, between ICU staff, both among themselves, as well as with the patients or their families and surrogates. And we also looked at factors that may have impacted on the communication practices uh, in this study looking at the advanced directive and has already been mentioned, the ethical practice score. So what did you find regarding the availability specifically of advanced directives? So among the 12,850 participants who died or had the limitation of life-sustaining therapy, approximately 1,200 or 9% were known to have an advanced directive, and approximately 10,200 or, or about 80% did not. And also, this information was not recorded in approximately 1,400 patients or about 11%. Advanced directive availability was close to 50% in North America, 13% in Central Europe, and below 4% in the rest of the world. This finding seems somewhat surprising, especially as regards Northern Europe, where the availability was just at 2.6%, and Australia and New Zealand, where the availability was about 3.7%. Please note that the presence of an advanced directive was associated with approximately two-fold higher odds for the occurrence of an end-of-life discussion. 
I thought it was particularly sad that only 19% of patients had the capacity to participate in their end-of-life discussions, but their wishes were only known by their surrogate decision makers about half of the time. So what can we do with that information? What are potential ways to increase the number of surrogate decision makers who have that information of what those patients would have wanted? The low level... Go ahead, Dr. Mentalopoulos. In concordance with key messages of the 2021 European Resuscitation Council guidelines, patients and families, and generally the public, should be educated about the potential benefits and harms of life-saving or life-sustaining interventions such as cardiopulmonary resuscitation, invasive mechanical ventilation, and vasopressor support. And about the possible outcomes of such full-life support. For example, will it be good neurological recovery or chronic disability with poor quality of life? Members of the public should also be educated about their key possible future role in helping clinicians know about the outcomes that are important to them if they become patients and or to their loved ones if they become surrogate decision makers. People should become aware of the importance of recording their own wishes and preferences and of being knowledgeable of the values and preferences of their loved ones. Now, regarding healthcare professionals, they should develop communication skills enabling them to elicit patient wishes, and should also realize the need to spend adequate time in communicating with a patient family. Dr. Feldman, did you have anything to add to that? No, I'm terribly sorry. I uh, came in too early. Oh, no, we're all good. So, you guys found that there was a lot of variability in the practice of limiting life-sustaining therapies in different ICUs. So why do you think that is? Can you discuss that a little? So in the first instance, we need to say that we did not investigate the reasons for the variability in the practice of life, a limitation of life-sustaining therapies or the communication of life-sustaining therapies in different RTUs in the current study. Um, possibilities for differences in the practice of limitation of life-sustaining therapies could include different legislation and requirements in different countries, different religious and cultural beliefs among the population, and clearly one of the things we as you're hearing, we looked at was the value of having an advanced directive and the ethical practice score. I think in the first instance, what we were trying to determine on a global scale is was there a difference in communication practices? And that was our first objective. Um, if there were, and we had documented them, then these would be aspects that would need to be addressed in future studies. So 
What did you find regarding cases where end-of-life discussions did not occur at all? Why do you think that was, and how can we improve that? So where end-of-life discussions did not occur, this was primarily because either the patients did not have decision-making capacity at the time, and I think it's important to remember that these are the sickest of the sick patients in ICU, and are often uh, unconscious, uh, being ventilated, sedated, or whatever, or that families and or the patient's surrogates were either not available for discussion, or in fact, if they were, um, were not aware of the patient wishes um, regarding this. And I think we've already started discussing um, how to improve this, with increasing um, recommendations that patients have an advanced directive, discuss these issues with the patients, and we'll talk a little bit later about the ethical practice score again. So what does this study specifically add to the literature around end-of-life discussions in the ICU? What is its unique contribution? So I think that the study is, to the best of our knowledge, the very first global study to document variations in end-of-life discussions among worldwide ICUs. Furthermore, there are two additional contributions to the literature. Uh, number one, that uh, it indicates that the presence of an advanced directive significantly increases the likelihood of discussions about end-of-life decisions, but it also appears very likely that the ethical practice score also increases this communication significantly, almost certainly more than would have occurred by chance. But this needs further prospective evaluation. So where do we go from here? How do we use your findings to improve care? And what studies need to happen to advance this research more? So according to the retrospectively collected ICU-11 ethical practice score data, every one-point increment in the EPS, that is the ethical practice score, increases the probability of occurrence of end-of-life discussions by 30%. The EPS is an easy-to-use 12-component score. It includes the following ethical practice variables. Routine family meetings, daily deliberation for the appropriate level of care, end-of-life discussions during family meetings, written triggers for limitations, written end-of-life guidelines, written end-of-life protocols, palliative care consultations, ethics consultations, staff taking communication courses, staff taking bioethics courses, each country's end-of-life guidelines, and each country's end-of-life legislation. For each of the 12 ethical practice-related variables, a positive answer, so that is if they are present, is graded as one, and a negative answer that is absence, is greater than zero. The sum, the simple sum, is operationalized 
as an ICU-specific EPS with a range of 0 to 12 points. The EPS requires prospective validation. Now, this could be realized using a cluster randomized control design. That is, an intervention cluster of ICUs could have the frequency of end-of-life discussions determined before and after a six-month period aimed at EPS maximization. The control ICU cluster would then have, again, the frequency of end-of-life discussions determined at the same time points, but without using intervention. Frequencies of end-of-life discussions and their changes over the six-month trial period would then be compared between the two ICU clusters. Actual treatment limitation decisions would also be determined as the end-of-life discussions and compared between the ICU clusters. And finally, in this asset context, additional long-term post-ICU family outcomes such as complicated grief, depression, post-traumatic stress could also be evaluated. So, as we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. Feldman? So I think that the aim of studies such as this are to foster the movement that there is in the direction of greater autonomy for patients in general, and particularly in the ICU setting when they do not have uh, their own mental capacity to make these decisions. So while the study has documented quite significant variability in end-of-life communication practices, The, the reasons for this need to be explored, uh, explored further. However, it does indicate some aspects of care, such as uh, the patient having an advanced directive, such as improved communication with family or surrogates so that they are aware of, their of the patient's um, decisions that may be associated with improved and increased harmonization of practices globally. And Dr. Mentalopoulos, do you have a closing thought? Yes. Uh, communication is a very, very essential thing for the improvement of uh, the application of ethical principles such as respect of autonomy. And uh, I believe that uh, this uh, easy-to-use ethical practice score can be uh, useful tool towards that direction, towards improving communication. Well, I'd like to thank both Dr. Feldman and Dr. Mintzalopoulos for a great discussion, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.